Hi, I'm Daniel, and this is the Dundeal Football Podcast. This week, we're going to be chatting about Manchester City and financial fair play. Um, it's a great almost double episode because what we are trying to do today is take you through some of the background for financial fair play, um, talk about specifics as to the UEFA ban uh, for Manchester City, uh, talk about some of the consequences. And I've also got a good friend um, and lawyer, barrister John Merzard, who I did a phone interview with um, to talk you through particular specifics as to the um, CAS procedure, the Court of Arbitration for Sport procedure, and some of the employment and contract matters that might be implemented as a result of um, the potential ban. So let's talk about, uh, at least in summary, what has briefly happened in relation to Manchester City. So as recently as uh, Friday, uh, UEFA came up with a press release which effectively stated that because of um, two things, firstly, overstating the um, sponsorship revenues that Manchester City made over um, a number of seasons, and because of a lack of cooperation with UEFA investigation, um, Manchester City has been banned for two Champions League seasons, the next two upcoming seasons, along with a €30 million fine. And in handing out the ban, UEFA's independent adjudicatory chamber of the club financial control body, the CFCB, said that it had found that they had broken the rules, and this is specifically by overstating its sponsorship revenues in its accounts and in break-even information submitted to UEFA between 2012 and 2016. In addition, obviously, as well, to failing to cooperate in the investigation. I think it's really important, actually, just before we go into the specifics of Manchester City and um, the consequences of effectively what um, may happen, is just to talk a little bit about actually FFP, its its origin and its objectives. And uh, there are particular parts of the Dundee book that I'm at least just going to make reference to, just to give a little bit of background for a few minutes, and then going on to the particularities and the, the complexities and nuances of effectively what um, has happened, what's going to happen next, the judicial side of things, but also the practical consequences too. Within the last decade, football's authorities have taken important steps to clamp down on clubs chasing the dream by spending big and not having the revenues to service debt, wages and transfer fees. Clubs such as Leeds United and Portsmouth got into trouble because they were living beyond their means and their costs exceeded their revenues. In many cases, the wage bill was more than the club was earning. Clubs then make larger losses and could could neither pay for their footballers nor their local businesses who had supplied goods and services to the club. In the UK, since 1986, there had been at least 81 clubs that had suffered an insolvency event. Fans had borne the brunt of overzealous spending. The authorities had been trying to find ways to avoid these financial failures. Now clubs may only spend what they earn. Previously, there were no such penalties in place. This created an arms race in terms of both transfer fees and wages. Some fans are annoyed that their club cannot spend as they wish, but in the long run, the authorities believe that outlawing kamikaze spending makes it more difficult for a club to encounter major financial problems. The football authorities have gone to significant lengths to ensure that clubs balance their books, do not spend more than they earn, and promote investment in youth development 
and in their stadia and training facilities. In the past, transfer fee and wage inflation spiralled upwards because each set of new and rich club owners injected more money into the European football club market. A keeping up with the Joneses effect meant costs spiralled further because potential owners then had to outbid other high-spending clubs. The beneficiaries were the players, earning ever more lucrative salaries, and the clubs eventually sought ways to help them limit their own spending. This may seem rather bizarre in the case of Chelsea or Man City, but to a degree at least, until more recently, it makes perfect sense. After spending more than a billion pounds, Roman Abramovich realised that football clubs cannot endlessly outdo one another. Clubs have effectively asked the authorities to save themselves from themselves. This process has happened at various national and international levels. Initially, UEFA was the body that looked into implementing cost control rules. UEFA and its then president, Michel Platini, had long been concerned that clubs making continual losses were not playing fair. The Premier League, and in particular its then chief executive, Richard Scudamore, had been wary of curbing the ability of owners to subsidise their clubs, fearing that this would lessen the competition's attraction for global investors. That approach changed in 2010, after Portsmouth became the first Premier League club to go into administration. Rules regulating transfer and wage spending were implemented. The financial fair play rules were put in place to ensure that clubs became more self-sustainable by breaking even in the medium to long term. UEFA, the Premier League and the Football League have all different regulations setting out spending restrictions that clubs must respect. These are effectively called acceptable losses. The result is that clubs can't generally spend beyond their means. It also encourages clubs to invest in sustainable and long-term revenue-generating assets like stadia or youth development costs, which are removed from the break-even calculations. Here at UEFA, Premier League and Football League level are the basics set out. Number one, clubs playing in UEFA competitions, i.e. the Champions League and Europa League, can make losses of up to 30 million euros over a rolling three-year period. That's 10, effectively 10 million euros per season. Premier League clubs can make losses of up to 105 million pounds over three seasons, i.e. 35 million pounds per season. And until last year could spend no more than 7 million more on wages than they did in previous seasons. Football league clubs can only make up to a 39 million pound loss over three seasons, i.e. in the championship, only 13 million pounds per season. By 2017, UEFA had set out some revealing statistics demonstrating that their powers had started to move club spending behaviour in the right direction. In their benchmarking report, UEFA explained that combined club operating profits had risen to 600 million euros in 2017, compared with the astronomical combined losses of 1.7 billion in 2011 prior to the introduction of FFP. Now, in the context, obviously, of Manchester City-related matters that we'll talk about, um, especially with John Merzard in a few minutes, the criticisms of financial fair play run as follows. The main argument raised by those opposed to FFP is that it restricts the amount of money owners can spend on player transfers and wages. This means that current, new and or aspiring owners 
cannot challenge the established larger clubs with significantly larger revenues and better players. Successful clubs will earn more revenue, thus being able to buy better players and likely to be more successful on the pitch, which in turn drives commercial sponsorship as more partners wish to be associated with winning teams. Smaller clubs cannot usually generate short-term revenues in order to fund spending on transfers and player wages, which means, according to critics of FFP, that aspiring clubs are prevented from challenging the established clubs. Inadvertently, the regulations have caused greater inequality from the clubs. As a result, competitive balance, i.e. maintaining the uncertainty of results to maximise the attractiveness of the legal competition, is potentially reduced. UEFA are no doubt concerned about potential gap, the potential gap between high-spending clubs and the rest. The difference is that UEFA highlights that clubs spending more than they earn and therefore risking financial difficulty is an issue separate from finding longer-term solutions to competitive balance. So far, there have been plenty of legal challenges to UEFA's FFP rules, with a complaint to the European Commission, a reference to the Court of Justice for EU, and the court cases in France, Belgium, and at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, now including Manchester City, all so far have been broadly decided in UEFA's favour. So in a few minutes, we're going to um, talk with John Merzard about a couple of specifics in relation to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and also some player contract issues. But I think, obviously, without going into too much detail at the moment, because obviously everything is relatively fresh and there's lots of content out there about it, I think it would be just interesting to talk through a couple of the consequences, at least some that I'd noted down. I think obviously um, there is a financial issue for Manchester City, which is depending on whether the appeal is successful or not, Manchester City's appeal is successful or not, the, the potential revenue decrease as a result of being banned from competition, from European competition for two years is significant. And, and many have potentially said that it could be worth up to 75 to 100 million euros per season. That would obviously potentially, at least in the future, um, be a significant shortfall and potentially put Manchester City in future harm's way for financial fair play, break-even breach. I think that's one thing to consider. I think obviously also one of the considerations also, also is for potential players in their prime coming into their prime. Um, I, I doubt many would um, be too pleased about missing out on two years worth of Champions League um, participation. And that obviously has to be a consideration for a number of players that want to continue playing at the top of the game um, and for um, a top club too. And obviously also, you know, from a strategy, from a talent recruitment perspective, Manchester City need to be able to demonstrate that, um, you know, bringing the best players in, but more than just bringing the best players in, that they can play and participate in um, Champions League competition over the next few seasons. And that's why when we talk with John Merzard in a few minutes, one of the interesting issues is whether Manchester City strategically and tactically when they go to CAS, are going to consider um, trying to ask the ban to be suspended pending the outcome um, of the case, or whether there's going to be an expedited process, basically a sped up process, so that everyone will know where they stand before the end of the season. And that brings on to one of the other really fascinating points, which is if the appeal is unsuccessful, um, then other teams 
in this case, uh, taking a simplistic um, position, um, the fifth place team um, in the Premier League would effectively then be able to play Champions League football. The query is, will the process be resolved by the time the season finishes or will it continue on for a number of months afterwards? And that is one of the things I think to look out for pretty quickly um, in the next month or so. And I think lastly, another point just to probably reference is um, the new, relatively new Premier League chief executive, I think in the last few weeks also mentioned that there is actually an ongoing Premier League investigation into uh, Manchester City as well. And obviously that's in the public domain, but what we are unaware of um, or what isn't in the public domain is what the investigation is to do with um, we, we presume it is to do with similar issues that is impacting on what UEFA is doing, but we cannot be sure. So while that is running in parallel, that is only an investigation at this stage by the accounts. The decision hasn't been taken. And then it might well be that a separate tribunal or panel needs to be set up in order to um, come to a decision as to whether Manchester City itself and themselves have breached the Premier League rules. And as I mentioned previously, the Premier League rules are a little bit different um, in terms of the financial fair play rules to UEFA. UEFA's rules are called the financial fair play rules. The Premier League's rules are called effectively the profitability and sustainability rules. And there are certain different requirements for each one. And so the next part of the, the podcast is effectively to speak to John Merzard. Uh, John is uh, a sports and employment barrister at Littleton Chambers. I've worked with him, had the pleasure to work with, working with him on a variety of sports and football matters over the last decade or so. Um, and he's got loads of experience in relation to football disciplinary, regulatory, eligibility um, and CAST, the Court of Arbitration for Sports Matters. And that's ultimately the next setting for what Manchester City are effectively going to do, which is by their press release, appeal the UEFA decision um, and then take things forward um, with Cass. So this is uh, my chat with John. So, uh, John, thanks so much for joining us on um, the the podcast. Um, for, for listeners, I um, work, I'm privileged of working with, with John Merzard on a, on a range of um, football and sports matters over the years on disciplinary, regulatory and employment matters. Um, and John has a, a vast amount of experience in uh, in the wider sports football and um, and uh, commercial contract sphere. And I think what we're going to try and do, John, if that's okay with you, is um, have a conversation on a, on a couple of points, but specifically based on your expertise in court of arbitration for sports matters. We were just going to spend a couple of minutes, if that's all right, just talking about, um, I guess, um, demystifying what CAS is actually going to do. And if we can maybe start with the whole process of now what actually is going to occur at CAS, the idea of them looking at this afresh and the preliminary measures and all of those type of things which are going to come to the fore. Yeah, uh, Daniel, first of all, thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. Um, it's always been a pleasure to work with you. Uh, and um, certainly when it comes to football disputes, they are international in nature, so I'm very familiar with Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, let me explain how the process works in, re in relation to UEFA disciplinary decisions. Um, exclusive jurisdiction for appeals is given over to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, so um, Manchester City or others could not go off to domestic courts. They have to go off in the first instance to the CAS over in Lausanne in Switzerland. Um, I think it's quite important for people to understand that the UEFA statute provides a very narrow time limit for putting in that appeal. It's 10 days from the date in which 
Manchester City receive um, the full decision from UEFA. Uh, and also it's important to emphasize that merely appealing to CAS does not have the effect of suspending the current sanction against Manchester City, um, either their fine or their two-year ban from the Champions League. Uh, but you can bet your bottom dollar that Manchester City will get their appeal in in time. Uh, but what's going to be really interesting is um, I would assume that they will um, not simply appeal and wait for a final appeal hearing, because that could be months and months and months, and frankly too late for it, because um, the Champions League, certainly in terms of the draw for the uh, group stages, will take place to to start uh, in September. So they can't wait months and months and months. They will have to, this is Manchester City, apply for um, provisional measures, which is in effect an application for a stay to the disciplinary sanction from UEFA. And that would have the effect of suspending uh, that um, disciplinary sanction until the full hearing. Of course, if they succeed, that means that Manchester City, um, we would assume, will finish in the top four, will then qualify for next season's Champions League. Um, and they would wait the outcome of CAS. And if CAS fine against them and the two-year period is upheld, then it would kick in in following seasons. So that's provisional measures. The second one is um, an alternative is seeking an expedited hearing. Um, and that expedited hearing essentially means that everything has to be dealt with at a full hearing very, very quickly. Um, and that could be heard within within weeks. Um, I, um, I would say this, that it will be very revealing to see what CAS does in terms of the application for provisional measures. And the reason why I say that is that one of the factors that the president of the panel um, will take into account when deciding whether to grant provisional measures is the likelihood of success on the merits of the claim. And so if um, provi uh, provisional measures and suspension of UEFA's decision is not granted, um, by way of implication, it can be deemed that CAS do not think a great deal of Manchester City's argument. Um, and let's just again talk about the time frame of how quickly we might know that outcome. Um, I've already mentioned the 10-day time limit to put in an appeal. You would assume that an application for provisional measures would be put in the same time. Then the ordinary direction under the CAS code is 10 days for UEFA to put in their response. Uh, and then uh, the president of the panel or the relevant CAS division should make a decision on an expedited basis. Um, so perhaps between sort of 10 and 14 days later. So it's entirely possible that within the next four to six weeks, we will know whether this decision uh, by way of um, the suspension of the Champions League will kick in next season or is likely to be suspended um, uh, until a, um, uh, a full hearing. Um, and can and I, I just ask I, briefly on that point, John? Yeah. Just very briefly, which is, um, obviously, this is for the, the wider layman. At that point, will there be a public announcement explaining what has actually then occurred based on those submissions by both UEFA and the club? Yeah, the, the answer is yes. I mean, what tends to happen is that CAS's um, decisions on a preliminary application tend to be um, 
uh, very pithy. So they will say uh, application for provisional measures dismissed or will say application for provisional measures granted. And there may be a few sentences uh, in addition to that explaining, for example, that balancing prejudice to both both sides, City and uh, UEFA, they find in favour, for example, of City. Uh, or conversely, they may say that um, taking into account likelihood of success and the merits of the claim, they reject it. But that, that is not a final decision on the merits. So um, any any sort of decision that's made doesn't bind the final tribunal, but that will be a public decision, and we will know whether that application is successful or not, and it will go up on the CAS uh, website, uh, possibly in just short form, informing us within four to six weeks. In, is my best guess. No, really interesting. And and on the on the point that you mentioned just before, I guess also, which is I think the interest to um, everyone, which is um, before we talk about a few substantive issues at CAS. Um, how is uh, the panel's composition effectively um, um, undertaken? H how do the uh, the CAS arbitrators effectively get appointed? Yeah, I mean, what um, what will uh, be the case is is there will be, um, I mean, in theory, there could be a single CAS arbitrator, but I, I almost certainly can guarantee that that the parties won't agree to a sole arbitrator here. So there'll be a panel of three. Um, each uh, party is entitled to select a, um, a member of, of a long list of arbitrators who sit at CAS and um, who typically are experienced in, um, in, in football regulatory disputes. And uh, both UEFA and City will be able to nominate one of them. And then there will be a president of that panel who will be appointed again from that list. Um, and so those three will be the ones who will sit on this. And of course, you know, they can't have any association with Manchester City or, or UEFA. Um, the, the parties will be asked at the outset of the hearing, I know from experience, of whether they uh, object to the composition of the panel. And if they uh, don't object to it, well, they can't challenge it later. So I've certainly heard in reports that Manchester City are suggesting that the composition of the panel before UEFA was in some way biased, improper, um, that that kind of um, argument is not being, going to work uh, before the CAS. There have been other cases that challenged CAS lists and all that, but this doesn't seem to be one in, in which um, that argument will be raised. There will be three independent arbitrators, one chosen by each party and a third who will be president. Makes a lot of sense there, and 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 then if we can move on to maybe, interestingly, one of the substantive topics that um, I know John, you tweeted about at length actually, which we found fascinating over the weekend, um, and that's caused and is continuing to cause quite a lot of, I guess, uncertainty or um, um, an, well, a, a degree of um, animation among different types of fans and commentators generally, which is. This point about admissibility, if in fact it is a point about admissibility, whereby part of presumably the UEFA case, and we're only presuming because we don't have a UEFA decision, we only have reports to go at the moment, suggest that part of UEFA's case might be in relation to leaked emails um, that formed the basis of then um, the decision by the the club financial control body investigatory chamber to recommend to the judicatory chamber that um, Manchester City should be sanctioned accordingly. And uh, you had some interesting 
points based on um, uh, Swiss law, I guess, as well, that would be um, applicable to that um, that CAS procedure. Yeah, um, I think I think where the confusion can arise is that those of us who are also familiar with civil courts in European jurisdictions and there are others who practice within the criminal courts will know that there are um, set rules within those jurisdictions as to admissibility of illegally obtained evidence. And um, the jurisdictions can differ widely. Um, but if we return to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, as I said at the outset, um, exclusive jurisdiction for the appeal, certainly in the first instance, I'll mention the Swiss Federal Tribunal in a moment, but exclusive jurisdiction rests with this arbitration body, the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And the Court of Arbitration for Sport ultimately is the master of its own procedures. And um, there's no hard and fast rule saying that illegally obtained evidence is, um, by definition, inadmissible before the CAS. And there have been a number of decisions in the past, usually to do with kind of match-fixing and doping, where um, uh, information has been gathered through, for example, wiretapping, which hasn't always been authorised. And that information has then come into the public domain and has led to disciplinary sanctions. And the CAS, in those cases, had a little hesitation in deeming um, information that's in the public domain, even if it originated from uh, illegally obtained uh, sources, to be admissible. Um, now, you mentioned earlier um, Swiss law, and it is important to emphasise that, you know, whilst I'm a, a barrister, soon to be QC of England and Wales, um, the procedural law within CAS, and given the seat of UEFA, also is in Switzerland, it will be Swiss law which governs um, these procedural issues. And um, certainly the CAS will have regard to how Swiss law um, has operated in these areas. But all I can emphasize is that my um, strong inclination is that football leaks, which is ultimately the source of these various emails, put this information into the public domain. Um, that information is now readily accessible, has been cited by the press and others. It would strike me as being wholly artificial um, that that information that was before UEFA then would be deemed inadmissible by the CAS now. So, um, like I said, no hard and fast rule uh, that this information is um, is inadmissible. My instinct is that it would be deemed admissible uh, based on CAS uh, previous uh, cases, uh, and ultimately this becomes a Swiss law um, issue if it's taken further. Fantastic, and uh, thanks for that clarity. There, I think it's a really interesting point to note. And I guess if we if we come to the the final, I guess logical conclusion of um, the CAS process is. The, the sort of range of outcomes now available both to sit in UEFA as a result of um, the, the CAS decision. And I guess also another point feeding into one of the points you mentioned before is timing and timeline. So it would be fascinating based on all of your experience as well just to talk about those range of outcomes and the likelihood of timings of those outcomes as well as possible. Yeah, fine. I mean, let, let's just start off with saying whilst everybody is getting very exercised, understandably, by UEFA's decision, 
Um, certainly in terms of CAS, this is not going to be the first time that disciplinary sanctions for breaches of the uh, financial fair play regulations will be heard there as an appeal. And it's not the first time that um, a party that has been sanctioned is going to contend that UEFA's FFP regulations um, are, uh, are abusive under EU competition law. Um, I think it's worth people looking up, if they don't know already, a decision back in 2016 of Galatasaray against UEFA, who were sanctioned with a one-season ban for being in breach of a settlement agreement they entered into, having previously been in breach of the FFP regs. And those regs um, uh, were a precursor to the regs under which City had been sanctioned. And the outcome of that is that their Galatasaray's one-season ban from UEFA competitions was upheld um, and was deemed not to be disproportionate by the CAS. Uh, and it's also important to emphasise that the CAS looked at EU law closely um, and deemed that UEFA's FFP uh, regulations um, w were were, um, were enforceable. So there is that um, relatively recent case which uh, shows that um, the CAS has, has uh, dealt with these issues in the past. But let me move on to timelines, because I think this is really interesting. Uh, because certainly if you're a Manchester City, for all kinds of reasons, you may not want this decision taken by CAS very, very quickly, provided you can get a suspension of these sanctions. Um, certainly if I was in their shoes, I would make an application for provisional measures. Like I said, we should know the outcome of that within four to six weeks. There's a school of thought that even at that stage, Manchester City could go off to the Swiss Federal Tribunal and try and get a effectively a form of injunction um, if they do not succeed um, with that stay. Um, it's, that's a purely procedural matter, so they, that may not be um, straightforward. Um, but let's say they don't get a stay um, an expedited hearing could take place within, probably would have to take place by June, July. Otherwise, um, the Champions League qualifying rounds and then the Champions League draw will take place shortly afterwards. That might be tough. Um, but alternatively, usually a CAS hearing takes place between about nine and 12 months after the appeal uh, goes in. Uh, but in a case like this, let's say that uh, UEFA, sorry, CAS upholds the UEFA sanctions, um, or um, even if they reduce it slightly, still uh, meet out a substantial fine and a ban, um, then Manchester City could go off to the Swiss Federal Tribunal and try and get a stay um, against that ban taking effect pending a full hearing for the Swiss Federal Tribunal. And I, I'll, remember, I'll remind people who are listening that Casta Semenya, a very different situation, but she went off to the Swiss Federal Tribunal to get a stay of Casta's decisions in relation to new IAAF regulations on an interim basis, pending a full hearing. Um, and so that was a further delay of about three months until that point was argued out. Um, and like I said, I think for reasons we'll come on to in terms of contractual rights and stabilities back at City, if I was them, I would certainly seek um, to drag this out for as long as possible whilst they shore up their contracts back at their club. Exactly, and I think that leads very nicely on then to um, another um, 
quite significant consequence then of at least what is the the current ban pending um, the appeal, which is obviously you know a core part of your practice as well is based on advising on a range of um, employment law matters, specifically in sports and football as well. And one of the um, a number of points, fascinating points that you raised over the um, over the weekend just gone, um, related to the contractual um, consequences of this potential ban, um, not only on Pep and his team, but also on um, on the players and their ability then, or lack of ability to potentially play in Champions League competitions in the in the coming season. It'd be it'd be great just to take us through that. Um, Sort of legal um, position and um, and see sort of logically where that, that that conclusion takes us to. Yeah, it would be a pleasure. Um, let let me crystallise it like this: that um, it would be reasonable to assume that any player, manager, assistant who joins Manchester City and therefore falls under an employment contract with them would it would have been the intention of both them and Manchester City that if they uh, qualify for the Champions League in the ordinary way, that those individuals would be entitled to participate in the Champions League. And it would also be reasonable to assume that Manchester City would not do anything that would prevent um, those that players, the manager and assistant from being, from being prevented from participating in that competition. And the effect of the finding by UEFA is that due to decisions outside the control of player, manager, assistants, that Manchester City have in effect acted in a way which has now means that they are prevented, even if Manchester City would ordinarily finish in top four, from playing in the Champions League. Uh, that therefore prevents um, play, their players and manager and assistant from fulfilling the full extent of their contracts. Um, it also prevents them from potentially achieving um, win bonuses based on performances in the Champions League. And in um, UK employment law terms, um, that could be deemed to be a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence, which is in every single employment contract. Um, and I, um, as you say, uh, coming from a background in employment law, believe that there is a strong arguable case that um, there would be such a breach. And the reason why that breach is so important is that that's effectively a fundamental term of those uh, employment contracts. And if there's a breach and a fundamental breach of employment contracts, then an employee can accept that breach, bring the contract to an end, and in football terms, walk out of their contracts and become a free agent, which would be devastating to Manchester City. Now, it's very important that I emphasise that this is entirely subject to the outcome of the appeal. At the moment, it would be premature for these City players to walk out of their contracts, because it may well be found by the CAS that City haven't done anything wrong, or alternatively, the sanction is reduced such that they are allowed to play in the Champions League. But if, on the other hand, um, that sanction is, is, is upheld or is any form of sanction preventing these players from playing or manager from managing in the Champions League is upheld, then I think there is a um, 
strong case that they could simply walk out of their contracts. Now that's all legal and slightly theoretical. Uh, back in the real world that we operate in, that we know what this creates is leverage. It creates leverage for the players and their agents and their managers, manager assistants and their agents to say to City that you, you, by your actions in the you know boardroom, wherever the decision was taken in terms of how they um, ran their finances, that because of your acts, you have now prevented these players from uh, fulfilling their careers, from furthering their value, from uh, receiving bonuses. And in effect, Manchester City, you must compensate them now by way of guaranteed payments or increased salaries for them to stay. And really, that is the dynamic here. And of course, it's a slightly a vicious circle that you'll recognise, Daniel, because the minute you start increasing wages, the more you have to find alternative sources of income in order to balance the books to find that you don't end up continuing to be in breach of the FFP rules. Um, but the repercussions of this not going City's way, um, certainly in terms of uh, removing the Champions League ban, is drastic in terms of their ability to hold on to players or certainly uh, hold them to their contracts as they are. I can well imagine that agents already will be in contact with the club saying, this is no fault of the players, managers, assistants. What are you going to do to honour their contracts that you've now deprived them of um, taking the full benefit in relation to? Very interesting. And I think we can... um there are interesting times ahead, especially on the procedural cuff side and then on the, as you mentioned, leverage that now uh, players and agents might um, try and uh, put on the club um, for lots of different reasons and as one um, additional element too. So, John, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's fantastic it to have you on. Um, I'm sure we'll be seeing you soon on a variety of different matters anyway. And um, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.